If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to another episode of On the Edge with Andrew Gold. Today is a sad, sad episode. Uh, We discuss Matthew Perry, the icon from most of our youths or our middle ages, Whatever the years, however old you are, I'm sure it inspires a great deal of nostalgia in you. It is the archetypal program. I can't think of any other TV series uh, with quite such a mainstream pull and quite such an effect on the cultural zeitgeist as Friends. Uh, Other than Friends, I can only think of The Simpsons. That's about it. And I think Friends even more so has penetrated our culture and with it, the sarcasm of Matthew Perry. Matthew Perry always made me think with his character and he was so brilliant with it. When people say, and I'm sorry Americans, people say it all the time, that Americans don't have sarcasm, they don't get sarcasm, I always used to think, could that be any more wrong? Because, you know, Chandler was the guy of the sarcasm. And I suppose there are nuances to comedy that it's suggested that some parts of uh, America don't get. I think that's to do with uh, TV series and comedies having to serve a much wider audience and then having to be less nuanced as a result Uh, but the idea that americans don't get sarcasm is just utter nonsense and that's how brilliant matthew perry was he managed to completely kill that stereotype we don't know the cause of death at the time that i speak by the time this goes out maybe you will have done we did this as a live stream i should say that my guest today again was dr raj pasord we did an episode a few episodes back about russell brand as well dr raj is a celebrity psychiatrist do check out his links in the description if we put some links there um i think we will do and give him some support he's uh, absolutely brilliant and he talks about not just Matthew Perry, but why celebrities in general tend to die young. And it's a fascinating one. So we talk for about 40 minutes today, just my questions and and that kind of thing. And then towards the end, there are some questions because we did this as a live stream from some of the people who were watching at the time on YouTube. And I think they're really good questions uh, that I may have wanted to ask myself. And it's just fascinating listening to Dr. Persaud. Um, As I say, a very, very sad time. And I imagine that you guys all have your own memories of Matthew Perry and friends and all of these things. Uh, In case anyone doesn't know, I should just, I keep forgetting that some people might not even know that the actor was found in a hot tub in his jacuzzi, I think it was, uh, in Los Angeles, uh, unresponsive or dead, unfortunately. And it's very, very sad. Um, As always, big episodes are all coming out over the next few days i spent some time at battle of the ideas or battle of ideas and uh interviewed some some big big names in that kind of uh centrist sphere 
uh, and it gets a bit it gets quite political so I hope you guys will be enjoying what we did there in person it's always nice doing the interviews in person I love that and uh, but now but now you're on the edge of celebrities dying young and Matthew Perry with Dr. Raj Persaud Dr. Raj Basod, you've joined me on a, a sad, a sad time. Uh, Matthew Perry, a beloved actor, uh, we all know from Friends, of course, iconic, has unfortunately passed away. What do we know at the moment about what happened? Because he was only 54, I think, or he's in the mid-50s. Uh, well, we don't exactly know what's happened. They, the, uh, we have to wait the pathologist report. Um, they're kind of saying that no foul play is at the moment suspected. So it looks like he may have died of natural causes. But obviously, to psychiatrists and doctors, someone dying so young, um, if there's no obvious medical reason, uh, you begin to look at the research into, is there a link between being famous and dying young? And um, I think the pop star, the Irish pop star, Sinead O'Connor, is yep. that her surname? Yep. She died recently as well. And she was, I think, in her 50s. Um, and in fact, if you look at the medical journals, um, there is some interesting evidence that the famous are more likely to die young for various reasons. And we'll, we'll discuss those. But what's particularly interesting uh, to doctors is they provide a guide, maybe in a funny kind of way, in how to live longer. Because exactly why the famous might be dying younger, and there is some evidence that is the case, gives you a clue as to how to look after yourself better if you want to live longer. Um, and there's been a lot of research, for example, looking at rock stars and pop stars, and they're a group of famous people, and a lot of evidence that they are significantly more likely to die younger than the average person. And we can discuss the various theories, but they link to Matthew Perry's life because he has a history, as I understand it, you must keep checking this while I'm talking to be absolutely sure, but he has a well-known history of having substance abuse problems and alcohol problems to the extent that I read in one of the bi biographies that he even opened his house to create a kind of rehab center. I mean, mm. he closed it after a while because he said afterwards the business model didn't quite work, but that shows the extent to which he was embedded in that world. And I read somewhere else that he got addicted to painkillers following, I think, a jet ski accident or something like that. Um, and he had a lot of uh, drink problems uh, as well. So we could talk a little bit about the theory amongst many doctors and psychiatrists would be there's something about fame uh, that leads to early death. And um, obviously, the most obvious theory in the Matthew Perry case and the different theories we're going to discuss is what you might call the temptation theory, that because famous people attract an entourage and they have money, are they more exposed to temptations like drugs, mm -hmm. drink, sleeping around? Uh, infidelity, excessive lifestyles, and is that one of the reasons why they die early, statistically speaking? Because there is some evidence from the medical journals they are more likely to die young. So there's the temptation theory. Mm, is it, I mean, that's fascinating, and we're going to get into that sort of the general idea, the general concept of you know what is it that makes uh, celebrities so much more likely to die young? And I'd be interested to test your theory and also to flip that and say, is it a particular type of person who who seeks fame in the first place but first i was just thinking you know this is this is hard for a lot of people who never ever met matthew perry i never met him and it was hard for me in a sense i grew up watching friends and a lot of people did he was in our living rooms and there's parasocial relationships that relationship between the viewer 
and the actor or the presenter on screen. And this, I think, Friends almost goes beyond that. It almost transgresses the parasocial. It, it turns into something more because it was such a mainstay in our homes. And he was so funny and so brilliant at what he did. Um, and it almost splits things now in our lives. I suppose this happens when any celebrity dies into, well, like, like the Queen or whoever it might be, into like a pre-Matthew Perry era and a post-Matthew Perry era. There was a time, I'll tell my kids one day, that the Queen was alive and I saw what she looked like walking around. And uh, Chandler on Friends that they'll be watching was a real person. And I saw him at events and things, doing things on TV. I, you know, I never saw him in, in real life. Um, but he was a, a living entity. And that would all seem like a, an abstract concept that's difficult for them to grasp one day. but. Uh, as a, psych a psychiatrist, uh, for people watching, do you have any words for for people who might who might be upset themselves? Because I think people might feel a bit silly about it, but also that you can't help how you feel. How what would you say to any of those people? Well, you're making a very important point, and the most extreme example of this is Princess Diana when she died. Um, in fact, uh, medical researchers looked at this and found that um, in the weeks following her death, there was a peak in suicides. And um, particularly wow. in the death rates of women of her age. So was there an identification factor? But the point you mentioned of parasocial relationships, this is relationships that develop between people, quite strong relationships with people they've never met, but they see on TV and they get attached to them or films or pop stars and they feel connected in the way you might feel connected to a friend that you go and meet down the pub. But this spike in death rates, um, particularly in women of Princess Diana's age, in the few weeks following her death um, is the most extreme example of a parasocial relationship where people can be really so affected. It can even lead them to think about feeling despair, depression, and to the most extreme form of um, thinking of killing themselves. So um, um, people are affected. They do feel connected. Um, and um, this was such a big effect that people were worried about that following um, the death of Kurt Cobain, um, his partner uh, made a clear uh, press statement asking his fans not to um, think about suicide and wow. killing themselves and so on, and not to be so affected by uh, his passing. So it's a real phenomenon, what you're describing. Um, I, I would say that um, the connection that people feel that leads them to feel grief is, is real, and feeling grief is real, but... Um, the dangerous thing is if you keep going on the web and talking about it and ruminating about it, it can come to dominate your life. And that's when people are vulnerable to doing something a bit extreme. Um, so while um, it is um, natural that you might want to go on the web and, and connect with other people over this thing, um, it's important to do other things as well and to get some perspective. You know, we were attached to him. Um, he was important to us. But um, there are other things in our lives other than this quite important phenomenon, which was the sitcom. But that raises another question, which people get quite low about, which is they say, if he was so successful, had money, and seemed to have everything going for him, was a good-looking guy, et cetera, et cetera, mm -hmm. if he felt maybe, we don't exactly know the cause of death, but talking about celebrities in general who may um, end up killing themselves, Kurt Cobain, um, possible overdose, possible suicide thing, um, mm. it, people think if, if life doesn't work for those people, that's another reason why they get despairing. Um, and it's important to realize that actually what we're going to talk about is the famous, maybe more vulnerable for various reasons, to mood disorders, to suicidal feelings, and to other things like drink and drugs and temptation hypothesis, which means their lives are not necessarily as plain sailing 
as people think they are. In fact, they, are, they, they, they suffer from many handicaps. So one example, actually, well, we're going to pick on that one. The parasocial relationship means that celebrities, and I, I see a few celebrities in my, in my private practice. Um, I mean, the most famous example of where having fans ends up killing you, of course, is John Lennon, who was killed by a fan and um, turned up at his, at his the Dakota building. It is said carrying a copy of the book, Catcher in the Rye. Yes. Now, Catcher in the Rye is a book about phoniness. Okay, and about adolescents discovering that the adult world is phony. So the theory is that the fan got felt betrayed by John Lennon and felt that John Lennon was phony, and as a result, um, assassinated him or killed him. So that's an extreme example. But what's interesting about that is that's obviously a very rare and extreme example. But because celebrities are bothered by fans, that's another risk factor to why their lives become distorted and why oh, yeah. they can get into trouble because they don't go out. Right, because yeah. they're they're worried about being by hassled by fans. Stay indoors, and end up, in my experience, seeing quite a few celebrities in my private practice leading a very unhealthy life. So, paradoxically, yeah. that's one way where being a celebrity can end up shortening your lifespan because you can't go to the gym in the way that others of us might go to the gym because you get pestered at the gym. You can't go to the tennis club. You can't go out and go and have a nice meal in a restaurant go and watch a movie. So. You tend to, in, to build all this stuff in. You can see celebrities with their massive mansions and villas. The Michael Jackson uh, uh, mansion being the famous example, Elvis, Graceland. They put the gym in the house, right? They put the private cinema in the house. But what that means is they never go out. Okay? Yeah. And that's not good for you. Okay, So you see that's an example of the celebrity lifestyle shortening your life as a result of that. Hope that makes sense. Yeah, that's my one escape is going to the gym outside. And I, I used to think, look, oh, you know, you know, you have that sort of daydream. Imagine if I won the lottery, would I get a gym in my house? Would I get this and that in my house? And I think, well, what's the point? Then I'll never. Actually, the whole point of going to a gym is that I get out the house. I, I get out. I, I don't want to do it. I could do push-ups in my room, and they can't. The only celebrity that I know, and I always show off about knowing in person, is Robbie Williams, and I just absolutely love him. And I got to hang out with him, but. And, and I'm, what I'm going to reveal isn't a revelation because he talks about it all the time on Instagram posts and things like this. But we we had to meet in some like big uh, tower at the top of a tower in Barcelona. And I said, have you been down to see the cathedral? Have you been down to see anything? Can you do that? And he's like, no, never. Well, you can never go and just see what Barcelona's like ever. He was famous since he was 15. You never can just go and do it. Never. And then he posts on Instagram a lot and he's saying when people encounter him all the time, it puts a lot of pressure on him. It's another side of it because he wants them to think he's nice because a lot of us want people to feel that we're nice. And he's such a nice guy as well. And every single time he's got to do the whole performance and give that niceness to people all the time. And then it, it almost feels like a, com he hasn't said all this, I'm extrapolating, but it starts to feel like a commodity. Like that, you know, that it, it, as long as you're still nice, they'll like you. If they like you, they'll buy your stuff and then you'll be happy. And, my word, what that must do to someone's... I, I have a very a, a small version of that with my 260,000 subscribers that I also show off. There's a lot of things I show off, but, but um, I've got a version of it. And a lot of people post, and I think they know it's the way to get to me. They, they won't say, oh, I love your work. I didn't really like that one, though. They'll say, you let yourself down there. You let me... that You've disappointed... You, that was very disappointing of you. Um, and you're, you're better than this. And that kind of... Like a mother patronizing their son and that really winds me up because then it, it, you do then feel like a show pony to an extent well that's another theory about why fame leads to shortened lifespans and that you could call that the stress theory that we've discussed in a way already a little bit that fame is stressful for various reasons a lot of people are famous 
in the world of television like Matthew Perry was. I mean, the series was a big hit series, but season after season, in that kind of situation, you're nervous and worried. One element of stress is, is it going to continue to be a success, right? So the trouble is that we're not aware of the fact that all these famous actors and actresses are really, really stressed and worried about their next film, whether it's going to continue whether the success is going to continue. So there's a stress around the precariousness of the career, right? But there's also a stress, very interesting link to a hint you made there of insecurity. The insecurity theory you were hinting at with Robbie Williams is insecure about being popular, okay? So this sense of insecurity, particularly amongst comedians, and Matthew Perry was a kind of comedian, right? There's a theory that what's particularly insecure about comedy stand-up comedy is the audience has to laugh you've got to get this immediate reinforcement that you're funny and if you don't get the laugh and the laugh you know the audience is silent and silent and silent you start to panic about whether you're being funny so a comedians are thought and there is some research to back this up to be some of the most insecure performers because they're so dependent on that feed of the laugh uh, one of the theories is why people turn to becoming comedians is because in their childhoods they were not popular and they turn to becoming performers in order to try and get attention for people around them. And interestingly enough, the research that looked at the fact that famous people tend to have shorter lives than comparison groups of less famous people found there was a high incidence of what's called adverse childhood events. And if you want to show off at middle class dinner parties, they're called ACEs. That's the acronym. Right. ACEs yeah. or A. So adverse childhood events, often the breakup of a family, um, some stressful event seems to be found more commonly in the background of the famous. So are they seeking fame as an escape from some kind of distressing early childhood experience or family experience? Are they looking for fans and fame as a way of replacing a disturbed family? Okay, so there is a lot of evidence that adverse childhood events, a stressful childhood, tends to lead you to have a shorter life? And is it people are pursuing fame uh, because they're trying to compensate from an unhappiness that arises from childhood? In other words, why would you try to become famous and, and pursue the love of anonymous strangers if you came from a loving background? Um, is it that insecurity and the need to compensate leads people to pursue fame? So that theory is about the idea that the famous are flawed in some way and that's why they're pursuing fame and that may explain some of the trouble they then tend to get into now interestingly with matthew perry of all the actors it said in the biographies i've been reading recently in the series friends he was the one that was most likely to end up in what's called the writer's room now american sitcoms have a writer's room because they, they have more money than we have in britain <laughs> so they have a whole team of writers which is why American sitcoms are funnier than British sitcoms. Right. British sitcoms are written by one person. I think that's that's going to be controversial saying that, but <laughs> but they're, they're certainly longer. The series aren't they? They go for like twenty episodes per, per season, whereas the British ones are six. Yeah. Anyway, yes. Okay, that may be controversial, but they're generally speaking, it is true. They've got a team of writers. The American yeah. sitcoms, whereas in Britain we've got no money, so it's usually one person and a dog, you know, yeah. writing the stuff. Anyway. So Matthew Perry was often it is said of the all the actors in the series friends the one the the, the only one that would be found in the writers room contributing wow. to the writing okay now what's interesting about that is that suggests that he might have been more creative than the others because being an actor there's an element of creativity but writing the stuff you've got to be even more creative now another interesting theory 
about why the famous, particularly people in the arts, acting, performance arts, that kind of thing, are more likely to die younger, is there is a very strong link between creativity and a particular mental illness, which is bipolar disorder. Okay, so um, Stephen Fry here in Britain famously has come out and revealed that he suffers, he believes, from bipolar disorder. So there is a very high rate of bipolar disorder in the famous, much more than you find in the general population. And bipolar disorder is a psychiatric disorder characterized by going high, elated, grandiose, racing ideas. But as you go high, there's a period of time of high energy and extra creativity which is the theory about the area and explains why um, often you find bipolar disorder in more creative people. Then, But then they go too high and it ends up causing trouble. But it's also associated with mood swings where you go low. And when you go low, you may be suicidal or you may tend to drink and drugs. So this kind of mood swing thing that seems to be happening in bipolar disorder is found a lot more commonly in the creative and the creative are found a lot more commonly in famous people. So that's another theory about why the famous are not going to live uh, for quite so long. Now, going back to the insecurity theory, Matthew Perry wrote about the fact that I think he tried to date Jennifer Aniston, who he later obviously met on Friends, before Friends began. I, I think he knew her before, wow. and I think she rebuffed him. And it's interesting that he he wrote about it, and it, he really did come over, in my opinion, as really quite insecure. Because I mean, he he was a good looking, you know. Oh yeah. He obviously, became famous later, but you wouldn't think why would this person be insecure? But he did seem to be quite upset by by you know the, uh, this early encounter with Jennifer Anderson, for what I've been reading anyway. Mm. Well, that's fascinating as well. Okay, so I, I am interested because I haven't read his book, and I don't think you have, and some people here would have done. So please do. Uh, put in some comments and I'll try and see them if you think there were specific moments in his childhood that are relevant. And I think we I will take that to the good doctor. I do know there was a parental divorce when he was a small child, which was very difficult for him. Adverse style childhood event, you see, mm. maybe. Yes, yeah, yeah. Oh, well, I, I had one of those, but uh, I, I get to I get to be on this, this sort of this stage of, of victimhood. And they had to relocate uh, to Canada at that point and adjust just to a new environment. He then, though, I mean, yeah, he really found things difficult. Uh, he was getting into, by the time he was 14, he was drinking every day. Uh, he was smoking. He was stealing money. He got really bad grades, doing terribly at school. And apparently this seems to be true. Someone let me know if it's not. But it appears that he actually beat up the Canadian Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. And thats I'm not even joking. That appears to be a thing that he did do. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on What Could Go Right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. 
A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com heretics and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. Well, apparently he had a relationship with him. They were, they were friends, I think. Oh, I apparently think. beat him up. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But, but, I mean, does that show you that, I mean, even from a young age, he, he was destined for some difficulties? Maybe, maybe. But again, let's go back to the exploring this theory about um, why the famous have shortened lives. Um, now, it depends on the kind of fame. Is another theory. Okay, so let's look at one group of people who become famous um, and who seem to have a longer lifespan than the average person. And these are a study done on Olympic athletes, Olympic gold medal, silver medal, and bronze medal winners. They actually, the research shows, if you win an Olympic medal, you seem to have a longer lifespan than average. Now, to get an Olympic medal is a kind of fame, right? Um, but Maybe what's interesting is that kind of fame is achieved through a couple of things, which is obviously you must be very physically fit. Maybe you're genetically designed to be physically fit, and that's why those people may live longer than the average person, although they become famous, but they become famous for a particular reason to do with physical fitness. But there's another really interesting theory about why Olympic medal winners live on average longer than the average person, and that is to do with discipline. To get to become an Olympic elite athlete, you've got to be really disciplined. And going back to why rock stars in particular seem to have a shorter lifespan than the average person, there's a distinct lack of discipline in their lives in terms of going back to the temptation theory and the excesses. Indeed, many stars feel the whole point of fame is to not to have to be disciplined. The rest of us have to kind of like be careful about stuff, be careful about money, be careful about who we connect with in a romantic sense, et cetera, et cetera. So a lack of discipline seems to be what attracts some people, maybe in the acting or the rock star end of things. But the Olympic athletes who seem to live longer than the average person may be doing so because of this discipline point, this health point. Now, there's another study done on another group of sports people which found they lived shorter lives than the average person. And this was a study done on international soccer players who played for Germany. So it's German soccer players who made it to the international team, to the, the, the national team. They had a shorter lifespan 
than the average person. So you think, well, they should be a bit like Olympic athletes, right? Because they're athletes. But then again, soccer players are a bit more like film stars, aren't they? In terms of the the attention they get compared to an Olympic athlete. So, and also, although they're obviously pretty fit, they're not, I don't believe, and I, I'm sure we're going to get corrected by your comments, as fit as Olympic athletes. Because a lot of soccer players have a lot of time on their hands, which is why they play a lot of golf, apparently. Well, when was the study done as well? Quite recently, in the last but if 10 it was Germans years or so. On a, when they're, they're dying younger, it must have been Germans who were playing football or soccer 30 years yes, ago. Yes, but they followed them up. They followed them up to yeah, the you know, end of the, their the, life. What, what I'd say, because the football is back there, I'm, I'm big into my football, and back then they did used to just turn up drunk, probably especially the Germans, right? Don't cancel me for that. You're allowed to have a go at like Western countries, especially the Germans would have a beer after it. I've even seen Harry Kane. He's just joined Bayern Munich having a beer out there. I don't think he's had a beer in 10 years. But nowadays, yeah. they still do have the object. Yeah. Nowadays, they are. I would say they are like Olympic athletes. But that mm-hmm. study, when it was done 30 years ago, I would imagine that they were a little bit, you know, they, they did have drinks. Well, the, the, yeah, to follow them up to, to their death right now, then they were, they, we're talking about people who've been playing 10, 20, 30 years ago, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're looking at the, their lifespan, when their life mm-hmm. ended, right? So they would have been successful footballers 30 years ago or so. So obviously it's a snapshot, as, as it were, of the historic past. I, I take your point, but I still think it's really interesting that you would have thought, again, going back to fame, being an international footballer for Germany, that everyone's got everything going for them. Why would you have a shorter life? Why would life be more difficult? But it's show it's illustrating you know, fame is not an unproblematic thing, basically, um, for various reasons. So you've got almost the way I'm imagining it. There's two competing things. One is if you are disciplined and sporty and you're good at staying fit, you're likely to live longer. But if you're very famous and in the public eye and you've got all those kinds of struggles, that's going to, to knock it down. So you know those soccer players, they were footballers, they were not they were not that fit. It would be interesting to see today's ones. Also, Olympic well, athletes are yeah. not that famous. Maybe the most, you know your football better than I do. Maybe the best example of all is George Best. George yes. Best had terrible, terrible liver problems, didn't he? I mean, I think yeah. he had a was it a liver transplant and it, they didn't get drinking, I think. Yeah, Despite for, for, non, for non-British people, that's a, he was a, a North, Northern Irish, I think, footballer from the 60s uh, who was supposed yeah. to be the best. Manchester United. Yeah. That's right, but he, he only actually had like three amazing seasons because he drunk so much but again it was a different era that you know nowadays yeah. you wouldn't even get near the team if you were drinking that kind of amount of beer well you might have been if you were george best he was a phenomenal player i don't That's think one of the best nowadays i don't think i don't think you can compete nowadays no matter how good you if you're drinking like that when the rest of them are like ultra fit they're having like cryogenic baths and like every little bit of their skin is measured to be perfect yeah i don't know if, i don't know if they well there, there are a couple of famous quotes attributed to george best one of them is apparently he's meant to have said I've spent 90% of my money on drink and women, and I've wasted the rest. <laughs> and and uh, I, think, I, think, um, I think another one is where um, someone in room service came in to, to bring some, some drinks or food in, and, and George was in bed with several, several models, and, and the bed was covered in 50-pound notes. And the, and the guy who brought, brought the, the food in said, George, when did it all go wrong? Anyway, that's the lifestyle of footballers, right? That's yeah. never a lifestyle to Olympic athletes. And so the theory is they're a bit more like TV full, uh, and film stars. And maybe that's one of the things that's landing them in trouble and why they may be a shorter lifespan. Um, mm. for I, I suppose those... it's, 
it's just a mix of so many things, isn't it? And with, uh, with someone like Matthew Perry, you can absolutely see how if he was already drinking and smoking and things, and you, as you say, very insecure, not sure of himself. Possibly. That's exactly, possibly. Yeah, well, that's exactly the kind of person who gets into showbiz, gets into acting and things like that. Um, and he got to a point where he was so drunk, he was coming into the rehearsals and the filming of Friends, uh, completely drunk out of his mind, horrible hangovers, headaches. He doesn't remember three seasons of Friends. That's, I mean, we're talking about the, the American seasons. That's 20 episodes. Talking about 60 episodes just gone from his head that he didn't remember anymore. Right. He spent $9 million on 14 stomach surgeries. He had 15 separate stays in rehab and went to 6,000 Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. It, it does feel like this is something reserved primarily for the rich and famous is a very unique thing that happens to them with the pressures of fame. Well, yeah, he, he, I think his colon exploded at one point, and he, he had so much abdominal surgery, Ugh. he said that he had rock-hard abs, but not because he'd worked out, because of all the surgery he'd had. Wow. His, as, oh, poor um, thing. So, I mean, but one of the points is that, you know, um, having a lot of money and maybe being famous means you get surrounded by the wrong kind of people. Um, the wrong kind of people are people who are drawn to you because you are famous and you have money and they're not necessarily the best of friends in terms of looking after your best interests. And often they will um, mediate their relationship with you because they supply you with the drink and the drugs and stuff. And therefore, they almost have a vested interest that you never recover. So one of the great things about not being famous is that people are interested in you simply for you because they have there is no money or fame. So the, the, one of the trouble with famous people is they can never be really certain when someone's interested in them as to why they're interested in them. Are you interested in me because you like me or actually you're after my money or you're after my fame or you want to live off my fame or the reflected glory, um, et cetera, et cetera. So that makes famous people very insecure about relationships. But in my experience, clinically as a psychiatrist, having met many celebrities in my practice, they get surrounded by the wrong kind of people. And those people often don't help you recover from the alcohol or the drugs because it's not necessarily in their interests. Often they're actually supplying it or, or they get they get off on the fact that you become needy when you're in trouble, okay? So there's a, there's a whole complex problem around the fact that famous are often surrounded by very unhelpful people. And another classic thing that happens um, if you're famous is that you often sleep around quite a bit or you don't stay in one relationship. And there's a lot of evidence that one of the best things to help you live a long life is one stable, secure, intimate, confiding relationship. And if you have, you know, lots of different relationships, that's not going to be helpful in terms of a long life. So that's another issue, I think. I've got another one that doesn't get talked about enough, but only because I saw I, I have a, a minimum, a small version of it myself. So I'm talking to you as my psychiatrist now. Um but I know, you know, I, I also wanted a lot of the things I suppose Matthew Perry does. I don't think you become a YouTuber or a celebrity psychiatrist otherwise. So I think there's a lot of people who, who we do have some of these things. And it doesn't mean, woe is me. I must have, I, I had a lovely childhood, actually. It was all lovely. But I, you know, the same sort of, oh, I want to impress this person and that. But I want to really show that I can do this thing, all that stuff. And I left school. And at school, I was rubbish, right? Same as Matthew Perry. I beat up uh, Justin Trudeau. I, no, I didn't do that. But I, 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 had, I, was, I wasn't happy and I, I was doing really badly and whatever. And I needed to show people. So I tried and tried and tried. And I got my exorcism documentary out to the BBC. I remember actually being rather than happy that I had this film out on the BBC that was going to be the most exciting thing ever. I remember feeling really deflated 
And part of that I know is because it's the journey rather than where you're going to get to. It's the journey of, can I get to the top? Can I do this? And then not that my documentary was the top of the top. It was just like, that's enough now that I would, I've proved some people wrong. And now what? And I often feel that like that with YouTube, the first two years was such a struggle. I didn't even have time to think about anything. And now it's bringing in quite good money. I'm, I'm successful. People sometimes say hello to me in the street and this and that. And it gives me more time at night to sort of just lie there and go, oh, God, well, just waiting to die now. So that, <laughs> that's what you didn't expect on a YouTube call tonight. But you know what I mean? Just I, And I thought, my first documentary, right? I remember I was so excited, exorcism, blah, blah, blah. And I used to think even then when I got it done, Louis Theroux, right? Who, again, for non-British people, some know him, but a documentary maker. And... I, I thought, what gets him out of bed? Like, oh, today I'm making documentary number 107. Like, well, who, who cares? What difference to 106? That's got to be something. Do you, do you always have to be moving up? And Matthew Perry was so young, and he was, you're never going to top friends from a young. What can he ever do to top that? That's a very, very good point. And uh, there's several points embedded in there. One point is you achieve a lot. Everyone else is envious of you, but there's nowhere else to go. Yeah, right? so that's very interesting. The next interesting thing is that often when you're famous, um, by definition, you make a lot of money without having to do much work. So you've got a lot of spare time on your hands, right? The nature of that kind of business is what people don't realize, although you may work quite hard several days in the week, but generally speaking, if you've made a very successful film or a successful TV series, you don't have to work quite so hard. So you have a lot of time on your hands. And going back to the fact that if you're famous and you can't go out much, it creates a lot of empty space, which, you know, can only be filled maybe with negativity. But there's another really interesting thing that you kind of let slip there where you may not or may, may have realized it when you said Louis Theroux, which is that there was an implicit comparison. Now, when you become famous, you still think, well, what most people are thinking, you might be comparing yourself with people who are very famous. That's a downward comparison therefore you should feel great about yourself but what actually happens is you start moving the comparison group yeah. to people who are doing what you're doing but doing better than you okay so you win your first oscar and you start comparing <laughs> yourself with all the other oscar winners okay you win, you you make five million on your last movie so you move house to beverly hills and in the, the 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 road you're living in everyone else has got five million okay so what tends to happen is and there's a famous saying um, that comparison is the thief of joy. Be careful who you compare yourself with. What happens is, um, you should you should um, be comparing yourself with where you were before, and the people that you knew before you became famous. But what you tend to do is compare yourself with a new group of people you hang out with, all of whom are as famous as you, if not more famous. So that comparison problem is 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 trouble because it's trouble. I don't know people. People in the podcasting genre. I don't think about Louis Theroux so much because I'm in. The, I'm now the YouTuber, so it's a different group. But the trigonometry guys. I just interviewed one of them the other day. I was just hanging out with them, and then there's Chris Williamson, who's fantastic. And I think I think the trick is to me because I can't ever stop comparing. And I think it's helped me. But I think the trick is to do it in a positive way and and say those guys are doing great. I'm going to see how I can learn from them and to get to their level. But again, it's a different problem than Matthew Perry had because he was the top level anyway. I don't, I don't think there was anything yeah. above that. And I think that that could be yes. quite a yes. lonely, sad place. Yeah, but going back again to the comparison point, people who tend to be successful are competitive. And com competitiveness can be negative, but it can be positive. You try to make it into a positive thing. How, how can I be competitive and become better? 
as a person, but it can be negative because you can feel a loser as a competitive person despite being very successful, depending on who you compare yourself with, basically. There's always someone else better looking, with more money, doing better than you somewhere in the world. Speak for yourself, so mate. comparison... <laughs> Sorry? Speak for yourself. <laughs> anyway, so you can see why that is a problem. The other thing is Matthew Perry was good-looking, wealthy, famous. Then he was on this thing series called Friends where everyone else was famous, good-looking, and wealthy. And so after a while, you, you, you don't realize, ordinary people don't realize, those people don't feel good-looking because they're surrounded by spectacularly good-looking people on the TV set every day they go to work. So they don't feel special because they're hanging around with special people all the time. So that's another problem with being famous. There are so many problems then when you you start to weigh those up because you've said quite a few different things now that all come together, I think, and just made this toxic cycle for him. And it meant that he was just drinking so much. And then some people I could see in the comments are saying, you know, was has the cause of death been revealed or anything? It's been no, deferred. As far as I know. Yeah. yeah. So so if they have to find out more. But, it but he was found like... in a hot tub, I think. Isn't that right? Was it a bathtub or a hot tub? He was found in a hot tub outside, and you can see pictures of it. It's like this beautiful hot tub. I mean, it really shows. Uh, have you ever seen the series Bojack Horseman? You would love it. Sorry. It's brilliant. It's very psychological. It's a cartoon, but it's it's absolutely brilliant. And it does. It yeah. follows an actor who is very much uh, a, 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 in that sense a Matthew Perry type. Uh, who does a lot of bad things, maybe different to Matthew Perry, but it all comes back to him and he does end up, I'm not going to spoil it, but there's a bit in a, in a pool where he ends up face down in a pool, which is a, a common trend with celebrities and it's all very sad, uh, uh, very emotional. But, you know, Matthew Perry had that. It was this Los Angeles mansion beyond anything that you or I or anybody, I imagine you as well, I don't know, but anybody else watching can even imagine. Uh, and it was this hot tub joint to the swimming pool like with a, like a little bit between it. And he was in there and he Instagram posted, having not done so for a while, he, he started posting in the last week or so, lots of stuff about Batman. And I don't think anybody knows why, uh, but also uh, about the jacuzzi saying, oh, who knew that hot water in a jacuzzi would feel so good? And I'm, you know, almost mm -hmm. uh, ironically, in a horrible way, that's sort of what killed him. He went out to play tennis earlier in the day. He was an obsessive tennis player since he was a kid. He must have had all sorts. I mean, you'll know much more than I do about the science of this, but I imagine his organs were just knackered. Maybe, but the other young per person who died young and who died famously in the bath was Whitney Houston, I think. Mm -hmm. And I think she died in the bath because I think that was a drugs overdose because I think yeah. she had a drugs problem. So yeah. famously, being found dead in a bath is often associated with some kind of drugs overdose, and then you drown yourself, even though you're in a shallow bit of water because you're unconscious uh, when you slip under the water. So that's what some people will be thinking may have gone on here. I don't know, and we don't know. But I want to um, um, just talk a little bit more about the drugs theory and this, the temptation theory. Um, there's another interesting theory that um, back in the 60s, when you had the counterculture thing and the Beatles and the Rolling Stones, and those people did drugs, it is said, in a different context, in the sense that drug taking then was part of a lifestyle, really? almost a political choice, right? It was like, we reject this conventional way of leading your life, this materialism, and we're into a spiritual kind of journey. Um, one of the famous groups at the time, The Doors, took their name from a famous book, The Doors to Perception by Aldous Huxley. And that's about an idea, which is that drugs reveal true reality, 
and that we're kind of living in a world where we, if you're not taking drugs, you don't see the real world as it is. So, um, and famously, the sound engineer who used to record the doors said of all the pop bands he worked with, these guys read more books. And they always turn up, turning up reading books. So um, drug taking then was like part of a deeper thing, right? Um, in the sense it was like an embracing an alternative lifestyle. Was drug taking post that, post the 70s and 60s and the 80s and 90s, was more about hedonism. It was more about just having a good time. So um, there's another theory, which is that if it's just about having a good time, that may lead to a different kind of drug ta drug taking than the one um, which is about um, a, a, a choice uh, lifestyle choice. The reason why I'm going on about that is one of the key questions is about meaning in life. Okay, so another group of people that are famous but have a longer lifespan than the average person. A study was done on Nobel Prize winners. Nobel yeah. Prize winners have a slightly longer lifespan than the average person. So one theory is that's a kind of fame, but it's a fame that comes from a kind of achievement which is deeply meaningful in a sense. Sure. You, you know what? In other words, you get the Nobel Prize for physics. You may have been pursuing the Nobel Prize for physics. I don't know, but you were doing a lot of really amazing physics. And then this prize comes along. There was meaning in your life beyond, theoretically, the prize. In other words, you were doing great work anyway. There's a famous line, I can't remember the name of the actor, but um, in the, he stars in this series called Curb Your Enthusiasm. Larry David. Then he made a, fe yeah, I can't, he made a feature film, which is hilarious. I can't remember uh, the name of the film, but um, he takes in this young, attractive girl to come and live in his flat. Anyway, the film begins with him talking to camera, saying that he's a physicist, a quantum physicist, string theory or something. And then he goes, I was nominated for the Nobel Prize. I didn't get it. But, you know, it's all politics. <laughs> Which I thought was a great way of showing that he's still bitter and twisted about not getting the prize. Anyway. Very Woody so, Allen, isn't um, it? Yeah, that's right. Yes. Anyway, so um, the fact that Nobel Prize winners live a bit longer, though they're famous in one sense, suggests it's not just being famous, it's why you're famous. If you're famous because you do something that you love and is important, and it, it's still important whether you get fame or not, it's still meaningful, then maybe that kind of fame is different from the fame whereby to be an actor, you have to be famous to be a successful actor. It's very difficult to be a successful actor and not be famous, if you see what I mean. So um, there's, there's that element, which is why are you famous? Are you famous because you're a great violinist or being famous for being an actor may be a different kind of fame, if you see what I mean. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I've always found the acting thing a bit weird. And I've always said, if aliens came down today, one of the weirdest things they'd find about the human race is how we venerate actors in particular. Because I feel like at least film writers and directors really have some talent. I'm not saying actors don't. Of course they do. But not not the, the amount of talent they have is is not not the same as like, the amount we venerate them it, it is insane so i imagine you a lot of them must feel some sense of that uh, in, uh what's it called imposter, imposter syndrome 
They, they must do. They must do it. And, and I'm sure Chandler, Matthew Perry felt that as, as well uh, to an extent. You know, why am I being worshipped for just repeating these lines, which he did brilliantly, but is that as impressive as someone who wrote his own lines? Maybe that's why, he, as you say, he went into the room to start writing his own lines. Also, making sure he had enough of the good lines and things like that. A lot of actors do that as well. Do I have enough laughs in this? The kinds of egos mm. we're dealing dealing with with actors who I, I keep hearing are basically like empty coffee cups, and the script is just pouring the you know they're pouring the, some sort of coffee into them. But a lot of the actors don't they, they don't really have very much. You ever see Robert De Niro interviewed? Uh, just nothing. It's, it's like he, it's, he saves all his charisma to put into the characters he plays. He, you know, and I've heard yeah. Graham but, Norton, I think, talk about him and say, you know, he just he just doesn't have much going on in there. Yeah, but there's another very interesting point about the stress of being famous to do with comedians is that comedians entertain us and we find them hilarious. Then you meet a comedian backstage, or you meet them in the restaurant, or you meet them when they're not on show or having a go. And I think Robin Williams in a way, complained about this problem, which is everyone expects you to continue entertaining them. And when you're just an ordinary person, not generating a laugh every five minutes, everyone's really disappointed because they like you because you make them laugh. And then they meet you and you're like an ordinary person. And it's like boring because <laughs> are boring unless you have that in my team of 10 scriptwriters. And so these people feel a pressure to continue entertaining all the time when yeah. the rest of us can relax. So that's another stress of being famous, to live up to the expectations of your fans who turn up and then expect you to continue being funny. And they they can't they find it very difficult to understand. It's an act. There's a script. The camera's rolling. It's just the whole production. And they don't allow the individual to be separate from the production, I think. Well, you we can don't see know. that in the obituary of Matthew Perry. He, the people are finding it very difficult to distinguish him, the human being, from the character he played. Well, and and well, what I saw of him in sort of public life in the last 10, 15 years was was just tr trying to get people help who had the same sort of issues that he had. And he had this big debate that was quite famous in the UK with Peter Hitchens uh, on TV, where I think Peter Hitchens being a little bit more conservative was suggesting that, uh, you know, these sorts of drug problems are the... I, I don't want to misrepresent what he said. It's my memory of it. I think he had a little bit less feeling sorry for people who had taken drugs, and, and Matthew Perry saw it more as an, an illness. Well, one thing we don't know with Matthew Perry, I know you mentioned Whitney Houston, who was found in the bathtub or, or whatever it might have been, um, who because she was still using. The impression that I get, or that we're getting, is he wasn't using anymore. He seemed very happy. But, and, and it could be possible he had a relapse. But is it is it also true that I'm asking you a biological question here, really, rather than a psychiatric one. But is it true that if you take that many things, so he had all these stomach issues for that many years, even if he was sober for a good 10 years, it, it was likely to catch up with him? Well, yeah, the, 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 we don't know exactly the causes of death. It may have been natural causes, but it may have been that although he was in his 50s, his body was really you know, much older in terms of the, the damage that had been inflicted upon it by many years of, of abuse. So we don't know uh, the answer to that, but that's certainly one one point. What I would say as a psychiatrist that you're aware of is that there are often underlying psychiatric reasons why people take drugs. Maybe they're very depressed and they take drugs to cheer themselves up. They may have given up the drugs, but does the depression come back as a result of you not taking drugs? I mean, that's a classic problem. People say, I've given up the alcohol, but Jesus, life's boring, or, or, or they get low as a result, because the drink was really about another underlying psychiatric problem that comes to the fore when you get rid of the drink and drugs. So that's another theory 
the psychiatrist would have, which is do, do people um, ever recover from the depression unless they get proper treatment? If the, if the drink and drugs was the reason why that was happening was because they, there was an underlying depression. And that's a very common issue, I think. One thing that I find hard to understand, I think I think people who have not gone through it find hard to understand. I think we can all understand, even if we don't have it, an addiction to alcohol or different kinds of drugs, because we've we've been there when we were younger and we've had the fun and we can see how for some people that high is really Moorish. What I find hard to understand is painkillers, sleeping pills. You Eminem was addicted to sleeping pills, uh Matthew Perry painkillers. What what's What's going on there? Because if I have a, is it is a painkiller? I imagine it's not. But is this like ibuprofen? Is that what? Because to me, I don't even notice that I'm having an ibuprofen. I, maybe my headache goes away, but otherwise, I don't feel any different. Yeah, no, no. I think the painkillers they're referring to are opiate type painkillers, mm. morphine type drugs, and they can give you quite a buzz. Um, but okay. absolutely, why do people take drugs? Um, often, it's a shortcut to oblivion. It's an attempt to escape from life because life's very painful, and we discussed the fact that fame might be quite painful paradoxically. Um, but another thing that's happening with the buzz-type drugs like cocaine is people are taking them to feel great and feel happy and feel witty and interesting. People who've done a lot of cocaine you know, think they're being witty and interesting and brilliant, but they're actually being incredibly tedious a lot of yeah. the time. Um, so there is a really interesting theory about alcohol. I mean, I, I am a bit of an alcohol lightweight, just a couple of martinis, and I'm anybody's or stop get, get very giggly yeah we can we can tell mate we can see <laughs> but i also fall asleep very quickly after a few drinks now interestingly enough there are many people that get very sedated by that so, so by my drink and there are other people who get aroused they get very buzzy and they get more um gregarious and magnanimous and expansive the people are more likely to end up in trouble with an addiction problem are the ones who get more gregarious, more active, more energetic with a few drinks. People like me who fall asleep very quickly, you can see why we're very unlikely to become alcoholics because we just don't drink enough to get to that stage. Um, so that's um, another problem. And another problem is that when people go to their doctors, addictions are very difficult things to ever get uncovered because people lie about them. And doctors wow. are very bad at asking the right kind of question in order to uncover it. You know, they just simply ask stupid questions. Like, How much do you drink? I mean, who's going to answer that honestly? There are lots of clever questions, which I won't go into right now, that reveal how much you drink without asking how much you drink directly. And But doctors are often too busy. Your GP is often too busy to ask in a sensible manner. So I think addictions in particular um, are problems that go untreated because they stay covered up uh, much more easily than many other problems. And people don't go for help as a result. To an extent, are addictions thought to... I know that I imagine we don't know everything about these things, but are they thought to be genetic? One reason I ask is like I, I happen I happen to believe... I, I, I'm Jewish, I have a lot of Jewish friends, and Jewish people tend not to drink much alcohol. We're not getting, we're not getting drunk. We don't drink. Well, uh, we have some genetic uh, similar things. What's going on? Well, there is an element of genetics to um, alcoholism, but there's also an element of genetics to depression and maybe depression underlies alcoholism so you know it's a complicated situation but you also have to have access to the stuff this is going back to the temptation theory that most of us don't have enough access because we can't afford it and people aren't throwing it at us right how 
how easy do you think it would be to resist temptation if people were throwing? There's a famous moment in the film Love Actually that Bill Nye character, who's a rock star, an aging rock star, uh, says on camera, much to the uh, upset of the uh, Anton Deck, who are presenting a program with him, uh, Bill Nye, the rock star, says, your uncle Bill says, or whatever his name is in the film, um, don't ever buy drugs, kids. Uh, become a rock star. People give them to you for free. And, you know, Anton Deck, I'm terrified by this comment. But there's a deep truth there, which is that how many of us could resist temptation if it's thrown at us? One of the problems with famous people is they often get given the drink and drugs for free, a lot of it. And so it's not just the genetics, but you have to be exposed to the material. And most of us may be genetically predisposed to drink too heavily, but we just can't afford it. So it's never going to happen because we don't ever get exposed to it. So the exposure problem is a problem that the famous have that the rest of us underestimate. I think as a as a problem. Interesting. Yeah, I I see. I don't. It's hard. I don't have any will or desire. I don't think I've had any alcohol for a year or two. I used to have the odds beer, and I, I, I it's quite enjoyable. A bit lightheaded. Just don't have. It just makes me tired. Makes me go to the toilet a lot. I, I don't know what. I'd rather not. Just not go to places where I feel like I have to have that to enjoy the company of the people around me. Uh, but some people seem to love it. I've got some some questions for or, and things from people. Uh, Haley Cook just says, uh, "Stay strong. Thanks for all you do. Thank you, Haley, for, for for saying so. That's very nice." Nosferatu, and this is the point that I didn't I didn't even realise. Nosferatu says, "What the f- f- when did Matthew Perry die?" And so, if anyone is actually learning about this through this video, I didn't even consider that because it was a couple of days ago now. But of course, not everybody reads the same stuff, and so I'm very sorry if anyone did hear it this way. And unfortunately, a couple of nights ago, he was found uh, dead in his in in his hot tub. Um, why do celebs, Ian Holmes asks, always have marriage splits very soon after a grand wedding? Ah, that's really interesting. Because in fact, there's a very interesting study looking at how much people spend on their wedding. You know, there's this thing where people are spending more and more. And the study found the more you spend on your wedding, the more likely you are to get divorced quickly. So Whoa. that's a very interesting one about, because, um, you know, there was a famous, I think, is it the son of Beckham married the richest heiress on, on the yes. planet? I can't remember her name. Right. Um, but um, And the wedding cost millions, I think. But her father's a billionaire. Um, and I wrote a piece, and I think it's available on the web, about the research that looked at the more you spend on your wedding, actually, the more likely you are to um, end up getting divorced. So one theory about that and it will come back to the celeb point, but I think this is an interesting point, is, I mean, that their wedding went on, was just amazing. And I have to say there's a confusion that um, if you have this amazing wedding, which is a very romantic sense of what an amazing day or several days, and then married life kicks in. (laughs) Married life is not like the wedding. It's very, very different. And maybe one of the problems with throwing a lot of money at the wedding is you set up an expectation of what married life is going to be like, and it can't ever be like this really amazing uh, wedding, I think. Um, So that's one theory about what's going on. Another theory is that people who spend a lot of money on weddings believe that money buys everything. Money buys happiness, money buys love, et cetera, et cetera. They overvalue uh, what money has to offer. Um, and there's more to a happily married life than the money aspect. Um, there's another very simple theory, which is if you have enough money to throw at a wedding, mm-hmm. you can afford divorce lawyers. <laughs> if you can afford divorce lawyers, 
you get out early when the rest of us are staying in a marriage because we can't afford the divorce lawyers. Okay, so that's another theory about what's going on. But going back to about celebs and marriage splits, where I think one interesting theory comes back to the comparison point, which is that you're married to this gorgeous girl. Maybe she's an actress. You're an actor. You're handsome. You're famous. You're both famous. And then you go to shoot a movie and you meet a drop-dead gorgeous other actress and you have a kissing scene, let's say, yep. okay, et cetera, et cetera. So the point is, one of the reasons why there may be many marriage splits is the comparison point we made, which is you're comparing your wife at home with this latest drop-dead gorgeous girl you're now mingling with on the set. Um, there's a comparison uh, problem going on. There's a temptation uh, problem um, going on. Um, and maybe the rest of us aren't exposed to those comparison points and those temptation points, unlike um, celebs. Um, and also, because they have so much money, they can afford the divorce and they can afford to have another go with uh, another marriage, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, there's, it's a good point. I think there's a very high rate of marital breakdown um, amongst celebrities. Um, and that goes back to another point about the stress of their lives and, and why their lives may be shorter than the rest of us. I think, uh, yeah, the last one was the one I was thinking. My first thought was that if you, if there must be some correlation between those who have more money and those who have more opportunity to meet other people in circumstances that get them into those kinds of troubles and things. Yeah, so, I mean, think about, think about. I know this is maybe tough for you, Edward, but think about if you were drop dead gorgeous, you are gorgeous, and yeah. women were throwing themselves at you all the time, and you were married. How easy would you find it to resist temptation? Well, I personally, Dr. Raj, you know, since I'm getting married in, in six months, uh, would, would find it very easy, but I can see how a lesser individual might might struggle, a less restrained individual might struggle. But uh, no, no, I, do, I get yeah. what you're saying. And it's that, that much, you know, even if most people like to be loyal or whatever, there's got to be some correlation there. Um, I've got a, a point here that I just want to address from Starfleet Command 71, who says, the more videos I watch, the more I understand why Andrew got fired from the BBC. So I love that one because it you don't realize it's Starfleet Command, but you've actually given me a promotion because I, ne I never got hired by the BBC. So now I, I love that I was now not just hired, but but fired as well, which also makes me feel like a, a rebel. I did something cool and uh, got fired because they don't fire people unless you don't misbehave. So I, they never hired me in the first place. They bought my uh, documentary and uh, I, I actually lost money on it, which is how, how highly they thought of me. Maybe that's another cause of the stress for famous people, but increasingly with social media, they've got to deal with a lot of difficult stuff out there. <laughs> so you know, they, they've got to read a lot of difficult stuff out there, yeah. which the rest of us don't have to, you know. So maybe that's another source of stress. Yeah, I've been missing out the ones they've been saying about you. I don't want to I don't want you to have to feel the the same kind of stress that I get. And you know what it, you're you're absolutely right. If you've you know, let's say I'm just if you've got a million people watching, I, I never have a million people watching, but if you, I'm just giving a big number. If even 0.01% of them are horrible, then you're going to get a lot of horrible messages. Uh, most people are so, so nice, but you, you do you do sort of, your eyes are drawn to the bad ones, aren't they? It's just how, just how it is. Yeah. Um, here's uh, Purple Blue says, Matthew wanted to be, Matthew Perry wanted to be remembered for his contribution to helping people in addiction, not his performance and friends, which is sad. I think that goes back to what you were saying before, about um, just, yeah, never feeling good enough, like his performance wasn't good enough. He did, it just always silly thing like friends, and, you know, he obviously didn't value it very much. Well, 
Yeah, but I want to pick up on another point there. Um, yeah. the, the most effective treatment still known to modern medicine for alcoholism is Alcoholics Anonymous. Okay, this incredible worldwide brotherhood of people yeah. and sisterhood where there's meetings in every town and you can turn up if you're in trouble and there's a self-help group sense of what's going on. All right. Now, a lot of people have given up drinking. One of the ways they kind of create meaning in their lives is to dedicate themselves, as, as Matthew 30 did, to looking after other people with drink problems. So they it becomes, and I'm going to get into trouble a little bit, the Alcoholics Anonymous people. I, I want to emphasize again, it's an amazing thing. And it's more powerful than anything doctors can can offer in terms of helping people with alcohol problems. But it, but some people have said it begins to feel a bit like a cult. In a, it feels overly immersive and you can't escape from it. Yeah. And in a way, what's happening is people are replacing one addiction, which is drink, with another addiction, which is helping other people and turning up to meetings and helping oh, people. Wow. Now, obviously, it's a, it's a healthier addiction, you could say, right, than the first addiction. But are you, in a sense, still trapped in a world that you can't escape from? Because there's a big, big wider world out there of, you know, not having to be en enmeshed uh, with this particular group of people. And I know I'm saying something very controversial. I want to emphasize again, Alcoholics Anonymous has saved millions of lives around the world. But is it the case that what's happening is one of the reasons why some people are able to give up the drink is they replace the drink with helping people who've got drink problems? That's still healthier than drinking heavily, but is it still a sense in which there's a trap there somewhere of some description? I don't know. It's for people no, to I think, think about. I think it's a good point, and it's something I've heard said before about Alcoholics Anonymous, and I think you're, you're right to say it obviously helps a lot of people, but look, on, my, on, on my channel, I look at occult dynamics a lot, so you can't ignore that, and how strong a sense of purpose is, and if that's what's replacing the drug, it might help a lot of people, but I can see how that can get too much. You, you can't leave. I can imagine that feeling, feeling like people are checking up on you, and they think you, they're doing you a favor all the time. You're like, oh, just go away. I'm just having one drink, mate. You know, uh, I... I guess I guess if you could really learn to control that's yeah the AA model is you can't have just one drink by the way no. it has a total abstinence Man. anyway yeah but they do an amazing thing I want to say they do an amazing thing they do but is there a sense in which it has a slight cult like feel and that people um, need to be able to leave it and leave drink but they often they can't and and also often I other think there's another time they're so grateful that saving their lives they want to repay. AA by turning up and being incredibly helpful. But it's a very powerful thing. And I would recommend it to anyone who's got a drink problem. Go to your local meeting. There's one going on within 500 yards of where you where you are anywhere in the world, usually. The advice I've always heard is if you do see cults, if you see cultishness as a spectrum rather than Scientology is a cult and nothing else is, and then say you put Alcoholics Anonymous as like a, it's got a six out of 10, but it, the, the benefits usually outweigh the negatives or whatever. Now, the best thing you can do is make sure it's not the only cult in your life. So you're also part of a book club. You're also part of two or three other things. So that I agree. If you were, I agree. So if you, yeah. Then if you were to leave it, your whole world doesn't come crashing down. You've got several other columns holding you up. Yeah. I mean, one of the other things that is very powerful about A and it does work and get a mesh but their view is that you should always be on your guard because you're always in danger of relapse okay <laughs> so they always say you know basically you have to own up to the fact you're an alcoholic really till the day you die and you have to guard against temptation as a result and it's a very powerful model there's no doubt about that but that also means you're always 
very worried, perhaps, of relapse. You know, you, you, you're constantly vigilant for it. And maybe that in itself is a stress. I'm saying some controversial things, and you're going to get loads of comments from um, people from AA. But I want to emphasize again, there's no doubt that it works better than anything any doctor has ever come up with. Anyone li just listening on the audio podcast, Dr. Raj is winking when he says, I want to stress that it's, uh, it's, it's good. No, he's not. He's not. He's not. He didn't say that. Um, one point, here's a, a good point from uh, Trevor, 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 Trevor. Uh, no drugs or alcohol found. Surely the docs had him on some meds. And celebrity, you, you celebrity psychiatrists, you do stock them all. I mean, they they are taking... The other thing to mention about Matt, Matthew Perry was that he was overweight. He struggled with his weight for years, up and down, up and down. And it's one thing for one of us to be a bit chubby, but when you're a Hollywood actor, it's, it's no good. And I can imagine the stress that brings. They're all taking different kinds of new drugs and things to try and help them lose the weight. Is, do, you think, do you think that... Would you be surprised if, if it were to come out that it wasn't the things he was addicted to, but that he was taking some of these new Hollywood bits and pieces? Well, that's a really interesting point. Um, I think that and, and again, the really famous extreme example is Michael Jackson, who had a doctor mm. being paid $100,000 a month, $100,000 a month, and was prescribing him with fentanyl-based drugs, very heavy-duty anesthetic-based drugs to help Michael Jackson sleep. And what had happened over many years is Michael, and this is the public domain, I'm not breaking any confidence here, I was having trouble sleeping and he started off with the milder drugs and they got heavier and heavier and heavier over a long period of time. So um, as a doctor, what you should be saying to a famous person like Michael Jackson who comes to you and demands stronger and stronger drugs is I'm not prescribing them, okay? But, you know, um, it's very tempting if you've got a celebrity in front of you to want to be that Money. celebrity's doctor, right? Well, it's not just the money you become famous because you're michael jackson's doctor you get a lot of recommendations as a result of i mean it's seen as a badge that you must be a good doctor if you're a michael jackson doctor that's incredibly dangerous yeah. <laughs> right but it, but it is the case that today people think oh i'll go and see him because he's michael jackson's doctor okay anyway as disaster ended with this michael jackson being found dead and this guy was um this doctor was implicated because of the heavy duty drugs so one of the, th the problems with celebrities and their access to medical care, and it's a good point, they do a lot of doctor shopping because they can afford it, and sooner or later they find a doctor who's willing to give them stuff that most doctors wouldn't give to ordinary people. So paradoxically, my experience of famous or wealthy people to get worse health care than ordinary people because they attract the wrong kind of doctor who rubs their hands in glee and wants to give them a lot of treatment which they don't really need, and they don't, celebrities aren't attuned to the fact they've got to be very careful about a doctor who's very keen to give you anything you ask for because actually that's the wrong kind of doctor um and i think um elvis had similar problems um so they do a lot of doctor shopping and they eventually meet a doctor who goes well if i don't give it to them someone else will so i might as well do it and they rationalize it to themselves as the the fact they're going to be more helpful than all the other doctors but going back to uh, this question about no drugs or alcohol found, surely the docs had him on some meds. It is not the case that all psychiatric problems, if Matthew had a psychiatric problem, requires medication. Most of these things can be treated without medication. Um, so we don't know what was happening, but it's not inevitable that he would have medication. I bet for the weight he was. Oh, well, that's another really interesting point about the stress of being famous. Um, we, we've all seen pictures of... Um, actors or, or, or celebrities when they were young and incredibly good looking and then a now picture when they've gone to seed a little bit and it must be very painful for them 
they have an added stress, particularly maybe famous female actresses and yeah. and um, rock stars, to look good. The rest of us in our ordinary lives are not being hired because of the way we look, so we don't feel a pressure. But maybe they feel a particular pressure to look good, and maybe that's a very big stress to constantly be worrying about that. Again, in the film Notting Hill, uh, the Julia Roberts character says when they have this famous dinner and there's a last chocolate brownie to be eaten and it's going to be given to the person who's the biggest loser of them all, um, a game that only people would play in Britain, not anywhere else, <laughs> not in the US anyway. So um, she she makes a bid for the chocolate brownie by saying, and, and they all go, well, how could you be the biggest loser around the table? And she goes, well, I've been hungry for the last 10 years, <laughs> which was a comment on you know, the fact that you have to try and stay fit in a way, and it was very stressful. That that is a big thing for them. The weight and stuff is just huge for celebrities. This is an interesting one. I wasn't going to do it necessarily do another one now, but this is from mostly Sky. Who says Matthew said that Matthew Perry, when he was an infant, he was colicky, which I don't know what that means, but I'm sure you'll tell me. So his parents gave him phenobarbital on the advice of a doctor to calm him. Could this have been a trigger for his later drug addiction? So colicky is a kind of pain which comes and goes and is linked to the abdomen. So it's normally linked to this thing called peristalsis because your abdomen, your 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 bowel, this long tube, this gut that's within you, um, processes food by squeezing it. So it moves further down the bowel. So this peristalsis is a squeezing motion of the of the round bowel, and that when there's a problem can cause great pain. So it's a pain that comes and goes, and comes back. It's called a colicky pain, and it's linked with something going on inside your your bowel, basically. So um, if the parents did give him phenobarbital, I don't know whether that's true or not. Phenobarbital is a very strong old-fashioned drug, a barbiturate, and those are very addictive. So that could be where his addiction problems may have come from. But I don't know if that story is true. I haven't read that in any of the biographies so far about the phenobarbital. Yeah. But, it, but it, you know, it's possible. I, I'm finding it. it, it yeah, I, I, being the researcher I am, when, when you were answering the previous question and I'd seen this when I looked up, just to make sure it wasn't nonsense. It's in the Times. It is reported in the Times. So uh, it mm. looks like there was possibility. So it's just craziness. And just to just to show the full uh, range of YouTube, Liz Straub says Matthew Perry was a CIA asset. So well, this is YouTube. There's always going to be some theories that he was an asset for the CIA, and maybe he's still mm -hmm. working for them. Um, but you know, uh, Doctor Raj, tell us where people can go and find your stuff. Oh, well, um, I've got my own little uh, very small compared to yours podcast series. I've got an app called uh, Raj Basson in Conversation. They can find my podcast interviews. They tend to be with like um, other doctors and mental health experts about mental health. I've written several books, um, Staying Sane, how to, how to Make Your Mind Work for You. The most recent book is about how to cope with COVID, which is about resilience in the face of stress. So the mental vaccine for COVID-19 is a recent book. Um, and um, I have a well-known um, TED Talk, uh, The Psychology of Seduction, um, which people can look at as well. Ah, I, I would have said the, the psychology of something, I'm not going to tell you, and that would be The Psychology of Seduction, so that they would go and check out your You're very good talk. at this. You're very good at this. <laughs> now, seduced <laughs> you, mate. Well, we'll put, message me after and we'll put the links. Uh, so I can, like what the links are, we'll put some of them below.
Thank you, Dr. Raj Pasod, for your brilliant insight. Guys, do go and follow his stuff. We'll put some stuff in the links, and uh, he deserves it. You know, he's, he's, he came on at very little notice to discuss why celebrities die young and to discuss Matthew Perry. Um, I hope you guys are all all right. I hope you're keeping well. Lots of mad, horrible things are happening out in the world right now. I appreciate that you keep on listening. Please do share this out with friends. Uh, tell other people about it. It's the only way that an audio podcast really can grow. Uh, share it on social media and do all, all those things. It's very, very, very much appreciated. And come to my locals, andrewgold.locals.com, where you get the ad-free version of this these episodes, but you also get my video live streams that I do, sometimes just for the locals people. Sometimes I get some of the uh, locals members up on screen with me. Sometimes we do stuff like watch along. We watched my old Exorcist film together the other day, all those kinds of things. But mainly get this podcast out into the ether, into the world. And I thank you very much for doing that in advance. See you next time. <laughs>